0: We all have those favorite stories or those favorite facts that we tell so often that our friends or our spouses or our siblings get a little annoyed with us, like there goes Mark again, forgetting that he's told this same story 35 times before. In my case, one of those things that I repeat ad nauseum and much to the chagrin of those who love me is the very, very interesting fact that the word atone etymologically is simply a mashup of two other words, at one. I know, it's weird, right? You wouldn't think that it would be that way. You'd think it would come from the Latin atonius or the Greek atonatripia, But no, the word atone is just to become at one again. That's what this season is about. That's what we do as Jews and fellow travelers who may not be Jews. We take this time every autumn to try to be at one with something again. Something is broken. We've been separated from God or from the universe or from the cycles of nature, or we haven't called our mother or father because of something we're still mad about, even though maybe we can't remember what. Or we've just let that relationship with a sibling lapse or that old high school friend who we swore we'd stay in touch with forever. And now we realize it's been five, six years and two children have been born and there's been a divorce and we've never updated her about it. We have to become at one again. We have to smoosh ourselves back together. We have to, to knit together that which has been ripped apart or more likely that which is just frayed due to negligence, due to neglect because sometimes we just don't tend to our relationships. We just don't do what we can to keep ourselves whole, to keep ourselves unified, to maintain the integrity, literally the integrity, the interweaving, the wholeness, the connection of what matters in our lives. So this is the season of atoning. This is when we say, I'm going to be at one again with that person or that community or that value that I have let fall or that I've drifted away from. The boat has drifted away from the shore and I have to bring it back in. That is what it is to atone, to be at one This is Unorthodox, the world's leading Jewish podcast, and I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, with you for the annual Yom Kippur Apology episode. Every year, we bring you stories of atonement for this season, people, places, things, couples, communities who are figuring out ways to become at one again. Four cases of at-oneness on today's episode. The first, the story of Jordan and Chris Two close friends, one a Democrat, one a Republican, who take a cross-country road trip to figure out how to bridge the chasm that is their radically different political points of view. The second, a conversation with our colleague at Tablet, Marjorie Ingle, editor of the blog SorryWatch.com, who every year joins us to talk about how to be more at one with our best selves, no matter what's going on in the world. How do you make an apology? How do you actually do the work of coming back together, of saying those words? The third story, that of Jericho Vincent, somebody who fell off the path of orthodoxy, proudly so, wrote a book about being off the derrick, off the path, off the way, but now is coming back a different path and becoming a rabbi. And finally, a story from our producer, Robert Scaramuccia, about how a minor anti-Semitic episode in his teenage years has plagued this Italian-American boy ever since and what he's going to do about it. It's the apology episode fifty-seven eighty-one, Gentile Year twenty twenty. Two friends, Jordan Blaschek and Christopher Haw, a Democrat and a Republican, set out across America to better understand the country they love, and to better understand. Each other
1: my name is christopher haw i usually go by chris i
2: am a liberal i am from berkeley california i was born and raised there and educated there my name is jordan blashek i grew up in encino california
1: Some of my earliest memories were going to San Francisco to protest the Iraq War with my mom. I was raised on stories of shutting down universities in the 70s over Cambodia and Vietnam. I mean, that was the pinnacle of service and accomplishment and doing something
2: for your country both my parents are Republicans. So I grew up as a kid hearing stories about Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush. And then as I got into college and then ultimately into the military, those experiences also had a huge impact on my worldview, the military especially. There's something that drives these 18-year-old men and women to to sacrifice themselves for people they've never met in countries far away from home, all because America asked them to do it. And a country that can inspire that sense of pride and loyalty, to me, is is a country that is good and noble. And that informs a lot. of my worldview and my politics.
1: I fell in love with Barack Obama, I'll admit it. I still am in love with Barack Obama. I don't think he can do any wrong. Jordan will probably roll his eyes at that.
2: I I grew up in Los Angeles. I'm surrounded by liberals. Everyone in my high school and middle school growing up were liberals. My sister, who ended up becoming a social worker, was very liberal. And so I think I had a fairly good sense for what liberals believe and why. Growing up, I, I don't
1: think I knew any conservatives. I must have, but it wasn't a matter
2: of conversation. I believed that the other side was likely naive about the world. We weren't angry at conservatives, they just were out there. They were
1: absent, they lived in a different land. It was just in this like, kind of idea out there like Bigfoot. I would say it wasn't
2: until Jordan that I really spent quality time with a conservative. Chris and I were initially introduced by my cousin at the State Department. I worked with Jordan's cousin
1: at the State Department, where I was a speechwriter for John Kerry, and she was the one who said, you know, when I was trying to decide where I was gonna go to law school, I was like, you gotta go to Yale Law School, and you gotta look this guy up when you get there. But, you know, new school, lots of people, email got lost, didn't do it. Um, and then one day at the graduate student bar on campus in New Haven, I was hanging out with a friend, and he said, look, I got someone I want you to meet. Chris, meet Jordan, Jordan Chris.
2: So before knowing that Chris grew up in Berkeley, it was fairly obvious that he was a hippie liberal because of his long hair, studded earrings and tattered jeans that he wore, along with some Vans checkered sneakers.
1: One thing you definitely pick up being in D.C. is how to identify a military veteran, because uh, they use these acronyms that uh, couldn't have come from anywhere else. Haircut is a big one, too. Strong
2: handshake. all All the stereotypes, too. He was the opposite of what I expected a State Department diplomat to look like. I thought he would have like a side part and wear an Oxford shirt tucked into his chinos. This was the Jordan, and so I said, hey, I think we're supposed to know each other. Yale Law School, the first year is filled with these, you know, someone introduces you or you meet and you go for 30 minutes. To meet for coffee to figure out what you're interested in. And at the end of 30 minutes, you decide if there's anything compelling about the person or not. You go get a beer,
1: you talk, you know,
2: it's the equivalent of exchanging business cards. I assume that my conversation with Chris would would be that. You know, Berkeley hippies and Marines don't typically mix well. Our first beer, I think, was at Kelly's Irish Pub. Pretty unremarkable place that served like cheap whiskey and beer, wobbly tables, and it felt like every surface was wet. And within minutes, I think we realized that there was something special here. What was meant to be 30 minutes turned into three hours. And on that first night, I don't even think we spoke about politics at
1: all, or if we did, it was very cursory. It didn't seem important to me that he was conservative. What seemed
2: important was that he loved books. Chris definitely mentioned Joan Didion. I talked about fields of fire and countries such as this. He had been to war and could tell the
1: aspiring war reporter in me about, you know, what it's like, you know, we could talk about California. After that, we became very, very quick friends. This is why you go to grad school, to meet people like this, lifelong friends. Other things were far more important than our politics. It was only later that it really became something that was important and sort of drove a wedge between us. So we had met in 2015, we had become friends throughout the school year. It was around May 2016 when we decided to drive across country. You know, we were hanging out at a bar, which apparently is, you know, an important place for our friendship. All of our stories apparently started a bar.
2: So we had known each other for about seven months and I had to be in Los Angeles and I decided I wanted to drive.
1: we were in the midst of a huge debate, I think around free speech rights on campus and people were like yelling. And I've become far quieter in these conversations as 2016 rolled on, as Trump became a phenomenon. Hillary seemed to be marching towards the presidency. People started really yelling and becoming super impassioned by politics. And uh, I remember Jordan leaning over and slapping me on the chest, basically, and saying, Hey, do you want to go on a cross-country road trip? I have to be in Los Angeles for my sister's wedding and a job. I'm just going to drive.
2: I think I was immediately regretful because spending seven days in a car with a new friend and someone who definitely didn't share politics, and it was 2016, uh, seemed a little daunting.
1: I've always wanted to drive across country. My mom did it in a uh, VW camper. I said yes because he had a car. He'd know where he was going. You know, that's another uh, way to identify Marines. They, they have great senses of direction. You know, they know where North is. That was it. We were going to take the northern route, so we are going to go across Wyoming, Montana, Idaho. You know, Wisconsin and Montana and hit all of these sort of important American places that I had never seen. That first trip was, it was just beautiful. Like, the country is, is staggering. We were in Yellowstone during a slight drizzle. We were seeing elk, buffalo, wolves. We saw baby wolves. It just felt magical.
2: I think when you're driving, you're able to see the similarities across the country. You see how places blend into the next, but you also get to really experience the differences and the richness of it. Going to places like New Orleans and Tulsa and Detroit, but also all the national parks reveal so much richness to the country that you can't help but fall in love with it.
1: It started to feel like the country was revealing itself to me. You know, I had gone quiet in these conversations because I didn't really feel like I had a good sense for what was going on around the country. How Wisconsin felt, how someone living in Montana felt, even like how people felt back in Berkeley, California. I felt so distant from the beating heart of politics that to then get out on the road, you know, have these serendipitous experiences where you're talking to people at gas stations or at Mount Rushmore, to hear how they articulate themselves, to talk about politics with Jordan, you kind of can't help but engage with where we are as a country and how people feel and whether we're optimistic or pessimistic or angry or complacent or whatever it ends up being. It was supposed to just be a good time. And it was, but it was also uh,
2: revelatory in many ways. I love politics. I find every reason to bring it up. I kind of like verbal combat. I would often take jabs at Chris. So on that first trip, it was inevitable that it would come up. But I think certain things triggered some of these fights, especially the more important ones for us. So one of them was around Mount Rushmore. I make some comment about, I bet the left is gonna try to take down Thomas Jefferson and Washington from Mount Rushmore. And Chris is like, why would you say that? Another one was this Idaho state trooper pulled us over and then ultimately let us go when I told him I was a Marine. And Chris registered a lot of surprise that The police officer would just let us go. And I said, well, of course he was reasonable. Most police are just nice people trying to do their job. And Chris said, well, that's not true for everyone. It would have turned out differently if if we were black. And that led to an explosive fight. There was one fight outside
1: of Reno, Nevada. We had just come from a Trump rally in Phoenix, Arizona. We had kind of driven right into the heart of our political discontent and come out the other side.
2: And Jordan said something along the lines of, it really bothers me that anytime Trump says something, there's usually a generous interpretation and a very negative one. Democrats always choose to take the negative interpretation. And Chris reacted really strongly to that and said something like, well, often his comments are that. They are racist or they are sexist. I told him to give me examples and every example he gave me, I kind of gave the generous interpretation. And that just set me off. Chris got increasingly upset that I was not acknowledging that those statements were actually horrible. And particularly the comment about Mexican immigrants. They're bringing drugs.
3: They're bringing crime. They're rapists. I
2: was like, that's a fucking racist statement on its face. I was so angry. That led to him saying something like, I can't believe you hold these views. I feel like I don't even know you. And me responding, how fucking dare you? Like, those are my views. How dare you say that? And that kind of spiraled out of control from there. I think the car feels heavy after a fight like that. It feels like there's, there's some cloud hanging over the car and both of us kind of look out away from each other and often even kind of lean away from each other and stew in our heads a bit. And the longer the silence lasts, the more the stewing lasts. There were multiple times when I was sitting in a car with Jordan fuming mad. You go through these thought patterns of how could he have said something like that or how could he misunderstand me in that way or how could he be so uncharitable to my views. And then slowly it comes back around to I just need, I need to get the words out.
1: That's one of the beautiful parts of being in a car. You you have to come down, right? Because you can't just say pull over the car, I'm walking two hundred miles to Reno. You know, you're in the middle of nowhere. You kinda have to go, I'm angry, why am I angry? Okay, I'm coming down. Eventually you're gonna you're gonna start regretting something you said.
2: The silence is hard. I mean, I'm sure most people have that feeling of wanting to be able to apologize or wanting to get certain words out, but they just feel caught in your throat and hard to say because it admits of some vulnerability or or some um, some acknowledgement that you were wrong. And often when I got to that place, when I
1: simmered down, I would, I would look over at Jordan and my girlfriend makes fun of me for saying this so often, but I'd say, I'm angry, man, but I love you. I love you, dude.
2: And me responding in kind saying, I'm still angry too, but I felt the same way. That enabled sort of the the path of reconciliation from there. The friendship matters most.
1: The differences mattered a lot less than the fact that, like, he was the one who had, when the tear gas canisters started flying at the Trump rally, like, grabbed my arm and, like, pulled me down so that I wouldn't get hit. He's the one who drove in the middle of the night when I was too tired to drive. You know, he was the one who talked the cop down when we got pulled over for doing, like, 90 in Idaho, and I was Freaking out. Like there was there's something deeper than politics there. It's it's just this reminder that that a personal relationship matters so much more than, than the way someone voted or what someone believes about something that feels far away when you're when you're driving, you know, west towards California.
2: Being stuck in a car together, we would fight about something. It could even get heated and impersonal. And And yet we were still going to be stuck together for eight hours. So we we had to kind of come back around, apologize, figure out why the conversation went wrong, but also where there really was agreement or common ground between us.
1: We wanted the same things. We talked about how to get there in very, very different ways. But it was often, you know, how do we how do we create opportunity? How do we get closer to the Constitution and, you know, creating this more perfect union?
2: And so, at the end of that trip, we said, let's do it again. We decided we were gonna turn this into a real project. And so from there, we did three more road trips across the country between 2017 and 2019. We covered 44 states and 20,000 miles. We tried to get to 45, but we got stymied. I think one of my biggest takeaways
1: from my years on the road with Jordan is that this is not easy. Common ground can suck. Polarization is a big old problem and it's, it's gonna take years to, to reform and, and bring each other back.
2: I think disgust at the other party has risen dramatically. I think the sense that the other party Or the other side is a mortal threat to the country that they pose an existential risk has really gone up and so it makes every election feel existential that if the other side wins how could we possibly survive one of the main things missing in our politics is a sense of grace that you can disagree with someone and it doesn't mean they're a bad person or someone could wrong you in an argument and that's okay you can like come back and heal at the end of it i think grace is this really powerful word that speaks to a lot of what what we need right now given the kind of division in our politics and I think that's a lot of what Chris and I found on the road.
1: The most affecting part about being on the
2: road was just realizing how complex this country really is. We now know what the road looks like between Montana and Idaho. We know what the landscape feels like in Mississippi and Louisiana and how the train looks in Arizona and, and Utah and Knowing the country in that way kind of reduces this uncertainty and gives you this sense of like, this is my land. Like, I know it. I, I feel a sense of, of ownership of it. And it's a feeling I, I hope more Americans get to have because it, it does reduce the sense of, of unknown and makes people and places come alive and, and therefore harder to otherize or harder to make caricatures about. You know, we spent
1: five days with a truck driver driving from Las Vegas to Slidell, Louisiana. His name is Pete. He had a Make America Great Again shirt on for four out of five of those days. And the first thing he said about politics was, you know, I, I really wish the president would talk more about climate change. It really bothers me that he, that he doesn't take it seriously. People are so unpredictable, so unpredictable around this country. And you've got to be humble in the face of all that
0: complexity. Jordan and Chris have written a book about their drives cross-country, getting to know the land, the people, and each other. The book is called Union, and for more information, go to unionthebook.com. had our annual chat with Marjorie Ingle. She is the co-author of the Sorry Watch blog, and she and her co-author are now writing a book about how to give apologies. She sat down with my co-hosts, Stephanie Butnick and Liel Lebowitz, and caught us up on the year in apologies.
4: We are joined by Here by our wonderful colleague at Tablet Magazine, Marjorie Ingle. She's the author of Mamala Knows Best, and she runs the blog Sorry Watch. It was actually just announced that that is becoming a book. So she is all sorts of busy doing all sorts of interesting things. Marjorie, thanks for coming back to the show. I am delighted to be here, Stephanie. Each year we like to feature you on our apology episode, our yoga horror episode, because you are... Sort of like the not the queen of apologies, because that makes you sound like you apologize a lot. You are like a, a <laughs> you you really understand apologies. I'm I'm an expert. I'm an apology expert. It's 2020.
1: It does not seem to me like people are apologizing a lot. It seems to me like we're shouting and accusing and doubling down on all kinds of awful stuff. If you were looking at the sort of apology graph, are apologies
3: like at an all time low? <sighs>
5: Um, I feel like we pay a lot more attention to the crappy apologies. And I feel like we are in such an era of gotcha where everyone is so eager to scream, to accuse people on social media. There are people who are apologizing and apologizing well, but they get drowned out in this wave of accusations and not wanting to forgive. And now I feel like I talk about forgiveness almost as much as I talk about apologies.
1: So how do we, how do we address that issue? Because as you just said, an apology itself would be meaningless if there isn't any receptivity on the other end to accept the apology. It's really a two-way street. So how do we begin this conversation about not just how to make apologies, but how to accept them?
5: It's easy to keep going back to Maimonides because Maimonides, in addition to knowing all the good things about chicken soup, also knew all the good things about apologies and forgiveness. And this notion of if someone tries to apologize to you three times and you don't accept it after the third time, they're off the hook. So I feel like if someone makes a legitimate, non-gaslighting, self-aware apology, it's important to to let people make mistakes and be forgiven for them because I feel like our culture is in this huge place of expansion and learning and letting new voices in. And that makes a lot of people tense and yelly. And we have to let people learn. We have to forgive them when they screw up, If if they screw up in good faith and are willing to listen to how they screwed up.
4: So speaking of letting people learn, you know, each year we ask you to do this. Will you tell us your like patent pending six steps to a good apology? Will you just remind us, refresh us?
5: Yes. Um, Use the word sorry or apologize. Do not say I regret. Regret is not apology. Regret is about how you feel apologizing is about how you make the other person feel. Name the thing you did wrong. Half the time when people tweeted us or Facebook at us, how's this apology? I have no idea what the apology is for. I should see in the apology that you understand what you did wrong. Do not say I apologize for what happened or I apologize for the situation. Take responsibility. Just avoid the passive voice. The minute I see the passive voice, I'm like, oh God. Show that you understand the impact of what you did. Not on you on the other person, on the culture, how are you going to ensure that this does not recur? What steps are you taking to to make sure that this doesn't happen in the future? And finally, how are you going to make amends? Like which could be as simple as, you know, we make apologies into such a big deal now, but making amends could be as simple as, "Hey, I spilled wine on your shirt. Can I get that dry cleaned for you?" You know, Something that's interesting is that, you know, when, when you've been on the show, we've talked about what it is, you know, you've
4: wronged someone, how can you tell them that you're sorry? Something I think we've seen a lot more this year is this idea of acknowledging our maybe complicity in, in some like larger societal ills. Where does that fall on a scale of apology? How do we do that right? You know, when we see corporations saying like, we're going to do better, we this, this and this. I mean, how do we sort of judge those apologies and how do we do them ourselves in a way that's meaningful?
5: I I feel like we do have a much more finely tuned BS meter than perhaps we did in the past. And sometimes when companies apologize and it's so transparently a selling strategy, I mean, I think Bon Appetit is a really good example when they like state their support for Black Lives Matter or, you know, talk about how important changing the world is. And then eight gazillion people come out of the woodwork saying, hey, I worked for you and you suck and you pay the black people less. Corporate apologies. It has to be, I mean, the that six steps still fit. Like what changes are you actually making to fix the situation that you're purportedly apologizing for? Apologies are actions as well as words. And Oftentimes the actions companies tend to take are firing a person and making them the scapegoat, which is funny that we're talking about scapegoats right at, you know, the high holidays when, you know, we actually have a goat. Literal scapegoats. Literal scapegoats. <laughs> um, and literally they take these people and send them into the wilderness. <laughs> but that's not enough. You know, you still have an entire system in place.
4: How do we sort of stick to our word if
5: these, with
4: these larger societal issues? I mean, how do you sort of commit to stopping injustice when you see it. I mean, these are all sort of very high-minded ideas. And when we're on the day-to-day, on the ground in our lives,
5: it's sort of sometimes easy to forget them. How do we stick with it? One thing I would say is apologies are mandatory. If you know in your heart that you screwed up, an apology is mandatory. Forgiveness is not mandatory, which is really painful because when we are brave enough to apologize – We really want the other person to be like, yes, I forgive you. This is all done. And sometimes it isn't. You know, you're never obligated to accept an apology for someone who's been gaslighting you and you know the apology is manipulative. But if you're not ready to forgive, even if the apology is sincere, but if it's for something that really genuinely hurts you or someone you love, I mean, you don't have to accept the apology, but, you know, doing the work of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur means you know when you've screwed up and you need to apologize. And if there is any way to forgive when somebody apologizes to you as a gift to yourself, going into this new year, I mean, I, I don't think any of us can recall a time with so much anger and injustice and, you know, violence, trying to be kind on an individual level, which of which apology And forgiveness are a part and actively doing all kinds of work, not just the work of apologies, but the work of making a better world are essential this year.
4: Marjorie, thank you so much for being our guide into 5781. Our listeners can follow along with Marjorie at tablet or at margeryingle.com, sorrywatch.com at sorrywatch on Twitter, the book when it comes out, will be we'll have you back on to discuss all of this and more. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Shana
5: Tova, everybody.
1: Thank you.
4: Hey, It it is time for some Podbiz. Tonight, May 16th, I'll be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it.
0: Jericho Vincent came to fame, some would say notoriety, in 2014 when they published their first book, Cut Me Loose, Sin and Salvation After My Ultra-Orthodox Girlhood. It was published under Jericho's former name of Leah Vincent. Jericho was born into the yeshivish community, the fundamentalist Litvish sect of ultra-Orthodox Judaism. As the daughter of an influential rabbi, Jericho, then Leah, and her 10 siblings were raised to worship two things, God and the men who ruled their world. But the traditional future that Leah envisioned was cut short when, at age 16, she was caught exchanging letters with a male friend, a violation of religious law that forbids contact between unmarried members of the opposite sex. Leah's parents were unforgiving, they put her on a plane and cut off all ties. Cast out, Leah was unprepared to navigate the freedoms of secular life. But here's the thing. As Jericho Vincent, they are now returning to Judaism. Those who read the book, Cut Me Loose, would not imagine this path. Jericho's journey has included stops in Buddhism, Sufi dervishing Islam, and scientific atheism. But Jericho didn't stop there, and now is on their way back to Judaism as a leader, as a rabbi. Sounds too crazy to be true? Have a listen.
6: Cut Me Loose is the story of how I came to leave ultra-orthodoxy and what happened in the immediate aftermath. I grew up in a very ultra-orthodox rabbinic family. When I entered adolescence, I started to push back against the way of life that I've been raised in. Um, I wanted to join the men's conversation, which wasn't allowed. I wanted to go to college, which wasn't allowed. I wanted to talk to boys, which wasn't allowed. My parents didn't have a lot of capacity to handle these rebellions, and so they started cutting me off. And by the time I was 17, I was living on my own in New York City. Still religious, just not ultra. I was really ill-prepared to handle living on my own. I was lonely, I was heartbroken, I missed my family, I missed my God, who I thought was furious at me for my little rebellions. It was a really turbulent time. And then there was this long, slow process of rebuilding my life and my sense of who I was. Uh, Central to that was figuring out how to get to college, going to college, and then the story of my memoir ends with me being accepted into graduate school at Harvard, which was a big dream of mine and um, a real exciting triumph. I went on to graduate school, I got married, got a job in the nonprofit sector, had a baby, and then achieved the kind of success that I had always thought was impossible and decided that I couldn't keep chasing that success anymore. I really needed to turn back and speak to the parts of me that had suffered so much and speak to anybody else who might suffer as I had, because the loneliness was really the worst part of what I went through. And I felt like if I write my story and put it in a book, put it in the world, if somebody else is going through this, at least they don't have to be alone. At least they can have the comfort of knowing there's other people who've gone through this journey. A lot of my OTD friends, OTD, which means after the were not into the religion or into the faith or into God, any of that when they were kids. And they left because of that. And I, I think was one of the rare people who I was deeply devout. Like I was in love with God, in love with our faith. So my religious and spiritual identity was really central to who I was. And when I was pushed out of my family and went through all this trauma, I was so hungry to find a place for my soul to feel at home again. I was introduced to meditation and started practicing um, Zen Buddhism, and that was very powerful and really helpful to learn how to quiet my mind to sit every day. But I was still hungry for something a little more fiery, especially ultra-Orthodox Judaism. it's got real meat and substance and texture, and I really wanted that. And I was brought to a mosque, a Sufi mosque, the moment I came in, I just fell in love. Like the practice was so passionate. It's all about loving the divine. There's dancing. And, and I'm a cynic and a skeptic, so I do go all in, but only when I'm ready, only when I feel like, OK, this is the truth. I certainly you know, came across plenty of other faiths and traditions and communities and said, very nice, but not for me. And then when I reached the point in my life where I left my career to start working with other ex-Ultra Orthodox Jews, to write my book. We were forming a new kind of Jewish community and that got me interested in Judaism again. I realized as I was connecting with these folks and interrogating my own story that my notion of Judaism was really small. There was a lot of falsehood in it. And it was very exciting to revisit it and realize, wait a second, this faith, this tradition is so much more expansive than I had thought. And that I belong to it, and it belongs to me, and I get to have my own relationship with it. And that was about a decade ago, and since then I've been figuring out that relationship, which has been really meaningful and thrilling. So the last piece of this religious journey is I've been struggling and grappling with Judaism and trying to figure out what is it and who am I and how do we relate to each other. Really feeling this call to the rabbinate, which I resisted for 10 years because that's ridiculous. I'm a blasphemous cussing shitster. And then this year, like so many of us, i reached this point of so much of my life kind of coming apart with COVID, with the political situation, with everything going on and realizing like, when things fall apart, it's a really great opportunity to build them up again in a new direction. And realizing you know what's it's time to give in. It's time to, time to go to rabbi school. So I started rabbi school this summer and the rabbi school I'm at is a very progressive form of Judaism called Renewal Judaism. And um, I took a class on sin which I'm very interested in. And the textbook was written by an Orthodox rabbi named David Beshevkin. And I was just so taken with this book on sin. I reached out to him and I said, hey, like, I'm very passionate about sin. I've done a lot of work around the epidemic of sexual violence in our culture. And I think sin is integral to stopping the epidemic of sexual violence. And I want to talk to you. We have some stuff in common.
7: This is David
0: Beshevkin.
6: So I
7: came to meet Jericho Vincent through the fever dream of any author, which is that somebody sent me a Facebook post that they had posted on their Facebook wall, and it took a passage from my book, which is called Synagogue, spelled S-I-N, a groaner of a pun, Synagogue, Sin and Failure in Jewish Thought, like who is in touch when somebody cites their work she was citing it in light of all of the civil unrest following the murder of George Floyd. And I reached out to her and said, Hey, I saw your Facebook post, and I'm so appreciative that you took the time to read my book, and I'm so thankful that it resonated.
6: Doug is amazing. We had this great connection right away, and we were both just kind of tickled by the fact that our lives look very different on the surface. I'm a genderqueer, post ultra orthodox, former Sufi Buddhist person. He's an Orthodox rabbi, and yet we're both on exactly the same page when it comes to sin and morality and atonement. It felt like, you know, Hosh al this kind of moment of divinely inspired connection.
7: So off the derech is a term that I actually hate. Derech meaning the path, that there's this one very clear path. And it really frames the Jewish community as this binary where you're either on the path or off the path. I like the term much better that's used in Israel, which I think is chozer b'she'elah, which means to return to questioning, meaning the answers and the approach that you were given as a child, maybe that your parents, the values that your school gave you, uh, you found wanting. And you've returned now to questioning to find a different set of answers. But the population of people who kind of self-identify as off the derrick or abbreviated as OTD has always fascinated me because... I think there's a lot that you can learn from the religious development and change that people experience in a lifetime. And even if it's dramatic change, I think there's this notion that this Hasidic Rebbe of Ishbitz said, where the verse says... You were rebelling against God, and he reinterprets it as you were rebelling with God. It animates that struggle in a great way when people are really grappling and struggling with the answers that they were given growing up. Even when they choose a different path, I think it shows a measure of religious vitality, and I certainly uh, saw a great degree of that within her.
6: It is very rare to have an Orthodox rabbi like Dev Shevkin have that kind of warm, appreciative um, perspective towards off the derach people. He understands that people who are off the derach do have something to offer people who are on the derach people who are Orthodox.
7: We originally just exchanged emails and we were talking about our mutual uh, fascination, appreciation, and interest in the world of moral accountability, apologies, being able to reconcile with one another. And we kind of both acknowledged that we were coming from very, very different backgrounds and positions and contexts. But when you're discussing ideas, and specifically when you're discussing the idea of reconciliation, it was much easier to kind of transcend our very real differences, to have a meaningful ideas-driven conversation about what moral accountability and reconciliation and and being able to say, I'm hurt and I'm sorry to somebody else, which is like the most human of experiences, we were able to kind of transcend those differences and have that conversation.
6: When you step out and you are willing to kind of be a public figure talking about things that people don't want talked about, it, it makes it really hard to be the person that goes and reconciles. You know, you can kind of become associated with all the things that people don't want to talk about, don't want to, you know. And so it's been really hard to have that kind of connection that I really want to have. And that's what makes my friendship with Evan so exciting because he is able to see that I'm eager to remain connected to the Orthodox community, that my activism and my criticism of wellness, the Orthodox community really comes from a place of love. You know, in the Talmud it says, there is no criticism, there is no love. You have to be willing to to do that accounting of the soul. And that's an expression of love and connecting with David because he really gets that. And he and I are really excited about working together on projects that can take advantage of the perspective I have as an off the person and also respect the boundaries and the values of the Orthodox community. And one thing I've learned from having my life smashed open is that, that there is this incredible opportunity to build something new.
7: I think one of the things that brought us together most, we nearly wrote the same article. She wrote a beautiful article and uh, I wrote an article on a similar topic, Uh, but they were both articles about the world of Me Too and how the United States and really the world was grappling with moral accountability in the workplace and in all these different industries and how the notion of teshuva, how the notion of Yom Kippur is something that could be instructive even in the secular context to allow for a more meaningful level of reconciliation in the public square. What the United States, what the world really needs is a Yom Kippur of sorts, like almost a secular Yom Kippur for everybody to come together and be involved in this collective exercise of reconciliation. You know, we have this model of conversation now when we dialogue with one another that it's got to be like these purity tests and pure agreement. And I think that's that's that institutional notion of conversation seeping into the individual level. You know, Jericho and I do not agree on all matters. Uh, Absolutely not. But that doesn't undermine our ability to connect with decency and graciousness. And that's a part of the exercise of reconciliation. You know, in some ways, she left the community that I'm a part of. That could be the only thing that I focus on, but I choose not to, because to me, before I see institutional divisions, I see a human being, and I find that what you're able to extract from that story is far more edifying, far more real, far more inspiring, not just to her, to me. In that covenant of conversation, when it's two real people, what emerges is far more valuable than any sort of utilitarian, do we agree on everything test
6: be a good Jew, to be a good person, you have to be acting rightly and you have to examine your practice. And so, Cheshbar and Nefesh, and accounting the soul, is a practice where every night, every week, every year, sometime period, you stop and you really think through everything you did. And you think, hey, were there places I could have acted better? And then you just take note and you try to act better. You know, I'm really fascinated by Beyonce's mega stardom. And it said that she basically does this, that she reviews her performances again and again, even though she's at the top of her game and looks for all those small little places where she could have done a little better. And we all got to be the Beyonce's of our life. We all got to figure out like, hey, that was pretty good, but where's the opportunity for some more growth? Where are some things that maybe I can go back and address if I was interacting with people in a way that was less than ideal? So I, I find that that practice is really empowering because it means that, We all mess up, of course, but when we mess up, we have the opportunity to then go back and make it better.
7: The word for forgiveness that appears over and over in the liturgy is the word mechila. There's something very fascinating about the word mechila. The word doesn't even appear in the Torah it's not a biblical word it's a rabbinic word and people struggle for how does the word mechila where does rabbinic literature find forgiveness how do they make that connection and there's an explanation that i've always found deeply moving the word mechila derives its significance from the Hebrew word halal which means a space and the word mechila means to create a space it means to create a space in your life to reach out and connect with others and I think that part of the mechila process is creating space in your life even for yourself I think so many people need to connect to this notion of being mohel of forgiving themselves We're so crowded out with political affiliations and divisions and different news networks and all this stuff, and we don't have space to get in touch with our very feelings, and we don't have space for those vulnerable connections for somebody else to enter. And I think that's a big part of the Yom Kippur exercise, that we create space collectively as a community for one another. It's a collective enterprise and a collective effort. We, connect, we create space on a family level, and ultimately we create space on an individual level for each of us to have that that moment to get in touch with those real inner feelings that are so often ignored because life. And I think that that's kind of the introduction to all of Yom Kippur. In that initial Kol Nidre experience, we ask permission Right in the beginning where the Chazan says that I want permission, Lahatir es Atmo, to allow myself La to pray Imha'avaryanim with the bad people, with the evil folk. And it's a really interesting request. There's an explanation that the word Lahatir doesn't just mean to ask for permission. Lahatir means to untie, to get rid of all of the knots. And I think that what we're doing as we enter into Yom Kippur is that we're untying all of those knots and experiences that weigh us down and make us feel inadequate and unworthy and unredeemable and unreconcilable. And when you untie those knots, you create space where you allow yourself the space to forgive yourself and to forgive others and to really reconcile with the world and not allow your past to erode or, or diminish the opportunities of the present and the future.
6: There is pain and there is sorrow and there is all of that hard, difficult feeling and, and experience, but there's also this opportunity to recreate something new. And I think that our world, our Judaism, our culture, our families, there's been a lot of pressure building. There's a lot that we have to look at how we relate to each other, whether it's around issues of race, whether it's around issues of politics, whether it's around issues of gender or sexual violence, or, you know, how we parent our kids or how we show up for our neighbors, whatever it is, I feel like we're in this moment in history where there's so much demanding um, that we address it. And amongst the pain of everything, kind of feeling like it's breaking open with COVID, the pandemic, the political situation, I, I think there's also this incredible opportunity to finally address these things, which are, are all the surface down. We're all out there. They're all screaming for our attention. Um, and I think we get the chance to, to try something new.
0: Finally, we hear from our producer, Robert Scaramucci. Robert makes his debut on our show with a story that he kept from us for about the first year, though we now think it's really the first thing he should have told us. It's the story of the anti-Semitic joke he once told and how it changed his life forever.
3: The summer before my senior year of high school, I told a teensy little anti-Semitic joke. I'd tell you what the joke was, but I don't remember it. What I do remember is that it made a Jewish kid cry. A Jewish kid named Aaron. Now, I told this joke in 2014, which was a long time ago. Back when Taylor Swift was telling us to shake it off, and Ebola was the only life-threatening virus we had to talk about, a lot of people, including me, have told a lot of stupid jokes since then. But this joke is different, because it made Aaron cry, and because it got me into Yale. I wrote my college admissions essay on that joke, on learning to respect other cultures after it hurt Aaron. Yale ate that up, and I got in. Met my best friends, learned how to make radio, which is what I now do for a living. So I got a lot from that teensy little joke. I don't think Aaron ever got an apology. That bothers me. You know, kickstarting my entire adult life with a pinch of anti Semitism makes me feel a little guilty. Especially around Yom Kippur, which is when Jews atone and make amends. I'm not Jewish, but I thought it'd be good, in a cosmic justice sort of way, to finally, after six years, apologize to Aaron, on air. Take the tools that joke got me, like this microphone, and put them towards saying sorry. The problem is, I have no idea what I'm doing. My first problem is that I don't remember the exact joke. So if I talk to Aaron, I'd have to be like, Hey, do you remember that joke that made you cry? Yeah, that one. What was it again? Oh, yeah, sorry for that. I can be more graceful than that, but I'm going to need details. So I start making some calls to people I know were there when this happened.
1: Did you make it present and inherent that you were Jewish?
3: So this is where it gets weird. So I... I am not Jewish, but what somebody in our town was. Huh. Hmm. Turns out everyone's memory is a little fuzzy after six years. That was Ryan. He was my camp counselor at something called Boys State. This thing with Aaron happened there. Think of Boys State like democracy camp run by the American Legion, only one week long. A couple hundred teenage boys wearing the same white shirt Descend onto a college campus and build an entire, simulated state government. From governor all the way down to local town councils. It goes about as well as you'd expect. ( minerals) That's from a documentary about Texas Boys State. In most states, there's a girls program, too. I went to Boy State up in Massachusetts. I remember a lot of sweat, a lot of bugles at 6 a.m., and one guy who ate a dollar bill while running to be our state treasurer. But what I remember most of all is Aaron. He and I were in the same town. At Boy State, you do everything with your town. Go to lunch, play sports, hold municipal meetings. It's about 25 guys, all 17 years old, supervised by counselors like Ryan. No one I spoke to from my town remembered exactly what I, or anyone else, said to Aaron that hurt him so badly. But I was able to nail down the exact location where this all happened. Talking to my townmates reminded me that we spent a lot of time in the hallway connecting our dorm rooms before bed, just sitting on the floor in a big oval and doing whatever activities our counselors threw at us. Whatever happened with Aaron happened in that hallway, and it involved not just me, but our entire town. Collectively saying or doing something that upset Aaron so much that he ran out of that hallway. That's as much as anyone remembers. Ryan says he would have told us to apologize when things went south. I don't doubt him, but I also have no memory of saying sorry to Aaron. So I still want to do this apology right here in 2020. I just need more details. So I get a Yale admissions officer to send me a copy of my college essay. Honestly, I'd been putting that off because well, I don't know if you've read anything you wrote in high school recently, but it's not very fun. Uh god. Such a good writer. A small ocean of exhausted teenagers wearing identical t-shirts sat in the cramped hallway of their dorm after a lengthy day at Massachusetts Boys State. Mm-hmm. Okay, let me spare you the rest of that for now. Here's what really happened, according to my essay. Aaron, my townmates, and I were set up in that hallway one night, pretending to be a town council with a municipal issue placed before it. The issue, which came out of a booklet of prompts given to us by the program, had to do with these ultra-Orthodox Jews who'd moved to our fictional town. They wanted their kids on the high school football team but games were on Friday nights, meaning their kids couldn't play and observe Shabbat at the same time. Our job was to either reschedule the games or do nothing. We were leaning towards doing nothing when a kid to my right said, well, if the Jews don't like it, they can leave town. Aaron, the Jewish kid, was on my left. He asked me what that first kid had said. I turned to Aaron and told him, he said he is anti-Semitic. (laughs) That's it. That's the joke, or something meant to be a joke. So I can say what I did, or didn't do. I didn't tell an anti-semitic joke at all. My essay exonerates me in that way. Sometime over these last few years, I must have just misremembered what happened that night. Kinda makes me think I'm off the hook. But then I read on. It's not that easy. Again, according to the essay, after I joked to Aaron that another kid in our town was anti-Semitic, Aaron revealed to all of us that he was Jewish. The debate over this fake problem in our fake town suddenly got real and personal. Here's what I wrote about the end of that night, after we'd all gone to bed. I could even hear the Jewish boy stater crying in the hallway as the counselor tried to comfort him. The guilt from that act kept me up past midnight. I may not have told any Hitler jokes, but this essay is also direct proof I did capitalize off Aaron's pain. 90% of it is just me telling that story with a little paragraph about diversity at the end. I used Aaron like I used my SAT scores, to get noticed. That still feels pretty bad, or at least like something I should tell Aaron about. So first, I just look him up on Facebook, just ask him for his email address. Hey, Aaron, exclamation point. He gets back to me, so I email him a written apology, just so he gets me saying sorry, even if he doesn't wanna go on the radio. He gets back to me again, appreciates what I said. Then, and this is the most delicate part, I ask him for an interview, so I can do this whole cosmic justice thing and apologize into the microphone he helped me get. We will do this and he may just say no and that is okay this is about the apology and not about me yes i can remember that i can remember that i don't remember that i make it all about me i start worrying about how weird it'll sound for me to suddenly ask to make a radio apology right after making my written one and i went out i write something like Hey, now that we're chatting, want to chat about Voice State? I've been talking to people like Ryan about their memories in general and would love to hear your general memories for a story I'm making about the program generally. Which is not very direct. Aaron doesn't respond right away. I'm left just staring at my laptop. I immediately feel smarmy. Uh refresh, refresh, refresh. I feel positively slimy after the first hours up, And just despicable after the second. I get nothing from Aaron, just a silent go to hell, which I guess I should have been ready for. I wasn't ready for it. Days go by. I regress into the 17-year-old I was when I went to Boys State, which means I watch a lot of YouTube videos fall into a hole of junk food reviews.
2: Time to
1: try 29 different Pop-Tarts. A deep hole. Time to try 15 different types of Cheez-Its. Yeah, I uh, found the Pop-Tarts one very miserable.
3: What was supposed to be a good-natured soul-scrubbing apology turns into a Cheez-It-filled anxiety nightmare. It doesn't help that because my phone knows everything I do, YouTube keeps serving me ads for the new Boy State documentary that came out in August. I watch it. There's a scene in it where one Boy Stater confronts another for pulling some dirty political tricks.
2: We had no bias, and I let it slide in that last bar, but now that you're over here slandering me, I'm not going to
1: take that. I do not want any issue with you. All I want is a simple apology. Okay? I mean,
6: I'm not going to
1: apologize, there was bias in that room. He said, okay, I have nothing to apologize for. Because he was so okay with demagoguing an entire crowd against a person, not a party, a person. And I was hurt.
3: At first, the scene makes me feel better. I mean, at least I did apologize in that first email. But then, of course, I think about Aaron. Sitting there, appreciating my apology, then getting my second email about the super chill interview and realizing, oh, this asshole's just in it for the story. After a week, I can't take it. I write Aaron another email. Can't mess things up anymore, so I might as well be straight with him. I tell him exactly what I want to do. Make a radio story all about apologizing to him, so the ball is in his court. I hit send, and I wait. Hello. Hey, is this Aaron? Yep. Hey, man, this is Robert. How you doing?
8: Hey, good. How are you? My voice has literally just went. I'm not sure what happened. I must be nervous.
3: (laughs) I want to tell you my sudden epiphany about the importance of being direct swayed Aaron, that my stirring prose like melted his heart. But actually, I get the feeling that all this has consumed me a lot more than it's consumed him.
8: There was nothing uh, about the first email that made me not want to respond. It was just busy at the moment that I got it and then forgot to go back to it.
3: Aaron loved Boys State, made friends quick. Then our town council had that hallway debate about the Jewish football players. It was moderated by our counselors, but the point was to let us just deliberate amongst ourselves. Aaron thought it was pretty obvious we should just reschedule the games. A lot of our townmates disagreed. Kind of like in my essay, Aaron says he remembers someone saying the Jews should just form their own football league if they don't like it.
8: Being like a big sports fan and stuff, it just brought me back to like thinking of like the Negro Leagues and how forming a whole another league for a group of people just didn't feel right. And that that was one of the comments that really got to me. I'm definitely not the most religious person, but that's always been like a big part of my DNA, like being Jewish. It, It was just a difficult uh, discussion that got kind of tense
3: i still have the discussion booklet from boy state the prompts are all jokey in a 67 year old american legionnaire sort of way like there's a reggae musician named roberta farley instead of bob marley the prompt about the jews though really goes all in on the jewishness the jewish community is ultra orthodox and originally from a settlement in the west bank it's led by a man named marcus schmuckerberg who is of course not only a schmuck, but a lawyer, with the firm Schmageggi and Nebish. Okay, if you don't speak Yiddish, that's like writing a prompt about a group of Italian immigrants led by Tony Pepperoni, who works at the Pizza Pie Pizza House and is also secretly a mobster. You get the idea. The point of the prompt is to ask all these 17-year-olds how to accommodate people from different backgrounds. Relevant question for Democracy Camp, but when you write something like that, It's not that surprising that the debate us dumb 17 year olds had got dicey. Aaron doesn't remember my joke, but he does remember having to leave the hallway to clear his head and text his parents. The whole thing brought up a lot of bad memories for him. Memories about more than dumb
8: jokes. Like whenever something happens, it's sort of just, I feel everything that's happened already and it all sort of is just like built up. I remember uh, my first Real like moment of uh, realizing that like people had a different view of uh, of Jewish people was we were walking off the bus and I was in first grade and another kid was in third grade and he like pushed me down he was from Lebanon he told me that the only reason that uh, bad things happen in the world is because of me and the Jews hmm. and so like I ran home crying in first grade because this third grader was telling me these things and it was sort of like when my parents first had to have like a talk with me about being Jewish and, like, all these different things. And and they were like, oh, like, why are you crying? And I didn't understand why people, like, hated, like, me. I had a lot of other, like, situations, too, where people would, like, throw pennies at me. They would uh Hmm. call call me different names and stuff.
3: When these incidents happen, how often do people apologize?
8: A lot less than you would think. (laughs) Uh, Just a lot of the people who threw pennies at me don't apologize. Uh, mm. Yes, yeah, so, so it's pretty infrequent, at least in my experience, that I've had people actually say, "Like, I'm sorry for what happened."
3: I tell Aaron that I wrote about him in my college essay. Kind of get ready for an earful. An earful that doesn't come. I can draw a direct line from participating in or being a bystander to some like an anti-Semitic incident that happened and then, like, capitalize and and then getting into Yale because of it and getting a job because of it.
8: Yeah, that's really cool. How, how, like, that moment did all these, like, different things for you and, like, how a moment that could be, like, or that wasn't negative at the time has, has turned out, like, really positive, like, impacting uh, impacting you.
3: Now, see, I, I assumed that, like, I would say that, and you'd be like, that's really weird. Like, why <laughs> did you... The, you were not a, a good person in this moment. <laughs> why? Why that? That's shitty that like you got this stuff from it. So that's, I don't know that your answer just surprised me in a in in an interesting way, <laughs> I guess. I don't know, man. Can I just like not apologize in person? Cause we are still not in person, but <laughs> through, through voice instead of through text. Sure. <laughs> Here it is. All I have to do is say sorry for exactly what I did clearly, specifically, succinctly. Yeah. I just, Hmm. I, I am sorry for the role that I played in just making you feel, I guess, not included in this group that we had at Boys State for just The stupidest of reasons and 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 for bringing up the the history that you had of experiencing anti-semitism and just kind of helping to bring all of that back up in your mind as you were hanging out with this group of kids who were all supposed to feel together like part like part of a team and i feel Mm -hmm. like just being there and and not calling things out or not and i i am sorry for not i guess taking a more active role and making sure ch- I am just sorry that for playing a role in hurting you. Um, yeah, thank you, nailed it mostly.
0: Robert's not only a reformed high school bully, but also one of the best audio editors you will ever meet. You can find his work, and you can even hire him by going to airmedia.org slash talent slash Robert hyphen
4: Mazel Tov, this week is a special one. It's a major thank you to everyone at every synagogue across the world that made their high holiday services special, even in a difficult year. That's everyone who figured out how to hold services outdoors in a socially distant manner or who figured out for the very first time how to live stream a service and get it on Zoom or long streaming synagogues who had to accommodate much larger crowds virtually this year. We're so appreciative for all the hard work you did to make this very, very strange holiday season still feel real and important and authentic.
0: Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Friends, please consider a gift. Help us get to a 1,000 donors. Go to bit.ly slash unorthodox2020fundraiser. That's bit.ly slash unorthodox2020fundraiser. And send us your thoughts on this episode. Unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us at 914-570-4869. You can subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodox podcast. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman Ader. Our assistant editor is Robert Scaramuccia. Our artwork is by Esther Wardiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton and Rabbinic Supervision by Rabbi Chaim Jacobs of Glasgow, Scotland. That's right, Rabbi Chaim of Glasgow, my favorite Glaswegian rabbi. We come to you from the scattered locations of the Diaspora Studios known as unorthodox shalom and a happy 5781 to you all friends